Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Football is back. Well, sort of. Wednesday morning, the news broke that the Big Ten will be playing football this fall. The only conference now not planning on playing is the Pac-12. Lauren, for your sake, I am so glad that college football is back. Congratulations to you and all of our other problematic women out there who are college football fans. I know from looking at our recent Twitter poll that I am one of the few problematic women that actually prefers NFL football to college football. (laughs) I guess that's a rarity. Uh, I am a Patriots fan, so I was super excited to see that the Patriots won their first game, but very sad to see that the Buccaneers lost For those who are following the Tom Brady saga, very sad news. Uh, The football game, though, that I was most excited about this past weekend was actually at my high school. I went back to my high school because I've been down here in Georgia visiting family. I hadn't been back in nine years. I watched a football game. It was great. We still have it. When I was uh, a senior, we were uh, state champions, and we... uh, had great success at the game Friday night. We won 41 to 7. Uh, things have changed a little bit over the years. The school's grown a lot. So anyway, kind of cool to be back. Yeah, high school football is really fun. It's something that I, I definitely miss not being in Florida. And I've even looked up, you know, are there any good teams around here that you can go see games? I know T.C. Williams from uh, Remember the Titans is just across the bridge over in Alexandria. And, you know, I think kind of the rawest version of the sport is always the most interesting, you know, when people are playing because they want to play, they, they want to be a better person, a better man. Um, and I think that's what's shown in, in high school football. And, you know, I think that shows more in, in college football in Virginia. Unfortunately, I think that's why I don't like the NFL as much because, you know, they don't care who their team is. They just, you know, they want to make a buck. So uh, I'm, I'm really glad. It's really cool. You got to go see the game. Yeah, always fun to go back to your alma mater and see some old friends. But Lauren, we have a great show planned for today. Can you tell us what we have on cue? Yeah, Virginia, super excited up on today's Problematic Women. School is back in full swing, and let's face it, education is probably never going to be the same after the pandemic. Mary Claire Amsalem, an education policy expert at the Heritage Foundation, joins us to discuss her brand new podcast, COVID and the Classroom, and some of the ways we may see education change for the better. Plus, our colleague Kate Trinko joins us to discuss her new op-ed discussing the controversial Netflix film, cuties and as always we'll be crowning our problematic woman of the week each week on problematic women we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative leaning or problematic women those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left if you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong independent women please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on apple podcasts wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. We are so pleased to be joined by Mary Claire Amsalem, an education policy analyst here at the Heritage Foundation and host of the brand new podcast, COVID and the Classroom. Mary Claire, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. On Monday, the first episode of your podcast, COVID in the Classroom, was released. Can you tell us a little bit about the podcast and why did you decide to start it now? Sure. So, yes, we have a brand new podcast here at the Heritage Foundation, COVID in the Classroom. And I'm sure everyone is sick of hearing this term, but this uh, we are living in such unprecedented times. And it really just can't be said enough. It's so true. And, you know, when this all started... 
I, it didn't even occur to me that this would be so transformational for our education system. You know, everyone thinks, you know, this is such a health issue. This is an issue uh, for our economy. But what this has done, what this pandemic has done to education is really uh, interesting and transformatory. And to look at all of these parents who were sort of forced to become homeschool parents overnight because they didn't have an option. Um, it really highlights how much we do need school choice options. And that's something that we have been working on in the Center for Education Policy for a long time. And so I really think it's important to be using this moment and highlighting why it's so important to give parents a voice during this time to talk about the difficulties that come with being a parent to a school-age child during this pandemic and talk about ways that we can rely on public policy to alleviate a lot of these really tough issues we're dealing with right now. It's so practical. I, I love this idea, Mary Claire. So that the a new episode comes out every other Monday. Mm-hmm. And who are you all really trying to reach with the show? Who should be listening? Well, everyone should be listening, first of all. Um, but we, we are really trying to uh, to service this to parents. Um, we want parents who are you know really struggling with the, the remote learning. I mean, it's hard. I feel like I, I flipped through my Instagram stories and it's just all parents saying, you know, day one of distance learning, you know, wish me luck. Like people are really struggling with this because their kids want to go see their friends. They want to go to school. They want a sense of normalcy. And it's hard to to say to your kids, you know, no, like, you know, this is your school for, you know, the foreseeable future and not really having a lot of answers. Uh, you know, kids want to run around. They want to see their friends. They don't want to sit in front of a laptop all day. Uh, and so we want to be able to talk about that. And we want to be able to talk about, you know, what's going on in our public schools. Why are schools staying closed when the science doesn't really suggest that we need to be doing that? Uh, so we definitely want parents to have a place that they can come to, to listen to interviews that we think might be helpful to talk about school choice and ways in which that might be helpful for parents. So I think that that w- would hopefully serve as a good resource. So I'm really lucky I've gotten a sneak peek of the first episode. And without, you know, telling us too much, one part that's really stuck out to me is these stories that have come out where public school teachers have asked parents to not listen in on their child's classes. Mm -hmm. So can you give us a little teaser on some of the stories that you share about this? Sure. So, yeah, we, we did talk about this a little bit on the podcast, how, you know, it was one school district that did this that got a lot of attention, but we're seeing here and there, a lot of schools are saying, you know, you really shouldn't be listening in on the classes. And you've heard the pushback be, well, you know, you can't just show up at your kid's school and, and walk around and sit in on classes normally. So these are teachers just trying to maintain a sense of normalcy. And okay, I, I guess I understand that argument. But we need to look at the broader picture of, you know, you are sending your kids to school to, to educate them in the ways that you want them to be educated. And the, the way that uh, our public school system is structured should be reflective of the needs and wants of families, not reflective of the needs and wants of teachers uh, because they're not their kids. Um, and so it, you have to wonder what the motivation is behind this. And when you look at it a little more, you've seen a lot of teachers like a teacher a couple weeks ago sort of went viral for tweeting that parents listening in on classes was going to get in the way of uh, their work uh, uh, destructuring, or I forget the exact word he used, but sort of getting rid of implicit biases that kids have and getting rid of your racism, your sexism, your homophobia, um, that teachers are working on that with your kid. And if you're listening in, that that's going to get in the way of what they're trying to do. That I mean, that's a major problem that should be a major red flags for all parents. 
uh, because what, what they're basically saying is we have plans for your kids and you're going to get in the way of the way we want to be uh, raising your children based on our values, not yours. Um, that's an enormous problem. And we should always be structuring education policy to reflect the values of parents rather than the values of teachers. So on September 11th, I saw someone post on Twitter. They're about my age, 30 years old, and they were a child when 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. And they posted about how their teacher decided to write a letter and send that letter home with students because the teacher didn't feel comfortable discussing September 11th and the gravity behind it. Hmm. So how do you think we went from you know, that time to now where teachers feel comfortable talking about sex ed and, yeah. you know, transgender issues. Like, how did we get from point A to point B? That's, that's a really interesting point. And that is very true. The public school system used to have a deep respect for the fact that we have a, a system that assumes one size fits all, meaning you you go to this school based on your, your zip code assignment, your district assignment. There used to be this understanding that, you know, we can't, you know, teach religion in a certain way because people have vastly different views on that. We can't teach a lot of these cultural issues in, in you know, one sweeping way because people have vastly different opinions on that. You know, different than math, different than, you know, history to an extent. You can teach history without having this this huge bias that we're seeing nowadays. But there, there's been a serious cultural shift. And I think that we can blame our colleges of education, which I talk a little bit on the podcast Away from, well, we should respect the fact that some conversations are better left to families because we need to make sure that parents are approaching these difficult conversations in a way that fits in with their values and fits in with the way that they want their family, their their culture to be. To, well, we are woke teachers and we, we have taken you know a ton of classes that enable us to handle these difficult conversations in the way that we think is best. And it's our job to impart that on America's children. Uh, it's a significant shift in the way that we're approaching teaching away from preparing kids for life and work towards preparing kids to be activists. And we don't need teachers creating activists. We need teachers creating, you know, able-bodied adults who are civically engaged and, and can prosper in their careers. Um, those conversations are definitely, those difficult conversations are better left to the household, to the families. And I think that we need to, to be talking about this type of stuff more to get teachers away from those, those difficult conversations. So let's talk about some of the solutions to these issues that we're seeing specifically in the public schools. School choice is certainly, I know, one of your passions and something that uh, we talk about at Heritage a lot. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with school choice, can you just tell us a little bit about what that difference is between the school choice option and then the education system that we see today? Sure. So, I mean, school choice is a very simple concept. And I know everyone says this about the issue areas that they care about, but this really shouldn't be a partisan issue. I deeply, deeply believe that if you look at polling on school choice and you just present, you know, parents with the question, should you be able to choose your child's school? Overwhelmingly, parents say, yeah, no, absolutely. I don't understand the arguments against that is what they, you know, is what the, the reaction is, is who, who would ever disagree with that? Um so the, the basic concept behind school choice is that we have a system now where we have a public school monopoly. And unless you can afford to opt out, you must go to the school that the government has assigned you to, regardless of if that school is teaching something that 
dramatically undermines your values as a family, regardless of if that school has a serious uh, drug problem, gang problem, violence problem, you have to go there if you can't afford to opt out. And this has created a, a huge problem in our society where we have sort of taken away the ladder of opportunity from families uh, who would be able to, to, you know, escape from poverty in many instances through a good education, but you can't because you are, you are stuck at your district assigned public school that, that might happen to, to be very poor quality. And so all school choice is saying is that, you know, wealthy elites and politicians in droves um, have had school choice for their families because they can afford to opt out. What school choice is saying is let's publicly fund education, but we don't need to publicly fund uh, the exact school that you're going to. So have the money follow the child, set aside the, the per pupil expenditure that we have for students today, give that to families and allow them to say, OK, we're either going to completely customize my child's education through something like an education savings account, or I'm going to take my education dollars and purchase a private school tuition, go to a charter school, online learning, if that's working out for you, whatever it is, you should be able to take the education dollars already allocated to your child and use them in whatever way possible, rather than the way we currently have it, which is the government saying, this is the amount of money we're willing to spend on your child. And this, this is the only school that you are able to use that in. It's a horrible way to structure the system. If we completely, you know, started from scratch, no one would redesign it to the system that we have now. Everyone recognizes its problems. And so, and this is why school choice is so popular is because it's common sense public policy. You should allow parents to choose the school that works for them using the education dollars already allocated to them. So what does it look like with the current pandemic that we have going on. A lot of school districts have decided to continue with online classes, mm -hmm. but I saw in Seattle last week, only 45% of students actually logged on to the system. I saw that too. I mean, how disturbing is that? I mean, you have yeah. kids who haven't even bothered logging in to school. Um, so I mean, it's an enormous problem. We're leaving kids behind. I mean, kids are getting depressed. It's really sad to see these depression rates that are coming out of this because it's, it's unnatural. And, and it's sad that kids don't have answers as to when uh, their, their schools are reopening again. Um, and, and Dr. Corey DeAngelis, who I interview on COVID in the classroom, everyone should go listen to that interview. Um, it, he did some research on, okay, what, is there any relationship between districts who aren't opening their schools and strong teachers union presence? And what he found was absolutely yes. There's a very strong link between the districts where they didn't open school and where there's a strong teachers union presence, which tells me that the, the major consideration here, the, the number one priority isn't we need to get kids back to school. We need to be treating this like the crisis it is. And we need to reopen our schools so that families have some sort of option. Um, they're relying on pressure from the teachers union. And that's wrong. The, the squabbles between adults should not result in, in the suffering of children. And those are the people who are suffering from this are the kids who aren't able to resume their normal life. Um, so it's definitely deeply troubling. So how would school choice kind of fix that issue? Uh, so if your child's school does not reopen, you should be able to take your education dollars elsewhere, like period, no ifs, ands, or buts. If your school doesn't open, there, there is already a, a dollar amount tied to your child when they're enrolled in the public school system. And so you should be able to say, okay, 
why should those dollars go towards a school that's not operating, that's not open, uh, where they have an online server, but only 45% of people have logged in? Uh, you should be able to say, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to send my child to a school that is open because that's what works for my family. You should absolutely have the right to do that. And so in terms of right now in the pandemic, I mean, our number one policy priority should be getting schools open and allowing money to follow the child. This is something that a lot of uh, politicians have proposed, and, and I hope we see that come to fruition. Uh, we should be funding families always, uh, but especially now uh, when we see so many school closures. So, Mary Claire, you know, you say that um, that school choice is common sense public mm-hmm. policy. I completely agree. But I have heard some people raise concerns that, you know, if that money uh, is kind of allotted to each student and it follows them wherever they choose to go, whether that's a charter school or a private school or homeschooling, that then what we're going to see is that the government is going to say, well, you can't take our money and just kind of do what you want. And they're going to mm-hmm. try and implement uh, more of kind of their own uh, procedures or their own heavy hand within things like homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you address that? Is is that a concern of yours? Sure. So it's such a, a loaded question. And this is a pushback that we obviously, you know, get all the time, you know, those of us who, who advocate for school choice. And, you know, just inherent in that argument is the assumption that if parents had the option to leave the public school system, then they would. I mean, that's what the fear is that they would. And so, I mean, that tells you a little bit about, you know, the the confidence in the, the quality of education that students are getting at public schools. If you're so worried that people would leave if having the option, then, you know, maybe, the, the quality of education that they're getting is admittedly not that good. Um, but again, I think that we should always structure policy so that the people who will be the greatest advocates for their children, parents, uh, there, there's this concern about accountability and, you know, how can the government track that you're getting a quality education, you know, as if anyone cares about the quality of your child's education more than you. Uh, I just, I just, inherently reject this argument that there are some bureaucrat out there who is more concerned about your child being well-educated than you are. And so they need to be making the decisions because you can't be trusted uh, to make a decision uh, for your parent. I mean, I don't care how educated you are as a parent. You know, if you have a high school degree, a college degree, a graduate degree, you know a good education when you see one. You know a safe school when you see one. You know if your child's happy in school. That bureaucrat doesn't know if your child's happy at school. They know how they're performing on test scores. And so we need to always be structuring these policies because squashing the voices of parents means that you don't have, you no longer have the greatest advocate for the child at play in the conversation. And that is so important when dealing with the, the deeply personal issue, uh, what and how kids learn. So I want to talk about school choice and bring up a specific example, and that is the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship. Mm -hmm. Can you tell our listeners a little bit kind of how that came about and what the effects of that have been? Sure. So the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program um, is a uh, is a voucher program uh, here in the District of Columbia uh, that has a a pretty amazing backstory. Um, Everyone should. Well, I was going to say everyone go to Netflix, but you should definitely not do that. You should not go to Netflix <laughs> these days, um, but you should search out. Maybe it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, you should search out the video uh, Miss Virginia. It's a wonderful story of uh, a Virginia Walden Ford, who was uh, very vocal and instrumental in getting the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program through. Uh 
and it's just the basic argument that there is that dollar amount tied to students already. They should be able to take it to a private school, to a charter school, to whatever school that works the best for their family, uh, because the system where you can only opt out if you can afford to uh, is is not the way that we should be educating children in America. So it's just to put it in dollars and cents, uh, DC spends about $31,000 per student per year in the public school system. I mean, it's a massive amount of money. That's more than most college tuitions. That's vastly more than any private school tuition. And uh, DC consistently ranks among the lowest in the nation in terms of test scores, in terms of graduation rates, pretty much any, any academic outcome you can come up with. DC is, is not performing well. So uh, something that, that I talk about on, on the podcast is that uh, the, this connection between money and quality simply does not exist um, in education. And so the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program gives you, I think it's an $8,000 sco- uh, voucher uh, for K through eighth grade and then a $12,000 voucher for high school. So significantly less than the public school would have spent on your child in their system. So it actually saves money uh, to give these vouchers to parents. And then it allows them to, to attend a private school of their choice. And we saw that um, in, a, in a study that compared students who got the voucher um, versus students who applied and didn't get the voucher, um, just to eliminate uh, selection bias there, uh, there was a 21 percentage point increase in graduation rates for students who received the voucher. And that's just the kinds of things that we can measure. Um, But if you talk to the parents of students uh, who enroll in this program, um, you you hear stories, you know, this program changed my child's life. They're so much happier. They're safe at school. I mean, these programs really, really transform lives and transform families uh, far beyond, you know, how we can just measure success in terms of graduation rates and test scores. Um, So it's a really fantastic program. It survived many attempts uh, at defunding under the Obama administration, Um, but it really is a fantastic program um, in D.C., uh, which is under the jurisdiction of Congress. So it is a congressionally mandated program program. Um, uh, But it's a really great success story um, for how school choice programs can be structured. So Mary Claire, can you just give us a little preview of what we can expect to hear on COVID in the classroom this fall? Absolutely. So you will hear a lot more talk about school choice, a lot more talk about uh, we'll be tracking public school closures, we'll be tracking teachers union strikes and, you know, bringing you the latest news on all of that so that you're up to date on the state of public education in America during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'll be talking to experts to sort of break down the myths about school choice, talk about pandemic pods. You'll hear that on the first episode. Uh, And I'll also be interviewing parents. I'll be talking to them about what is your experience experience? How has this been for you? And talking through, you know, what are your options? Are you engaging in a pandemic pod? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Those are the kinds of questions that everyday parents are asking themselves today. So I can't wait to talk about that more on the podcast. Yes, it is so good. You don't want to miss it. COVID and the classroom available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Mary Claire, Virginia and I have a couple more things to talk about, but we'd like to bring you back. Can you hold on for a couple minutes? Absolutely. Now stay tuned because up next, Lauren and I welcome our colleague Kate Trinko to the show, a true problematic woman, to discuss Netflix's new film, Cuties. But first, with school being back, that likely means research papers. And there are few better places to find research than the Heritage Foundation website. If you need scholarly sources on the economy, American military defense, international relations, healthcare, cybersecurity, trade, I could go 
on and on, then you need to visit heritage.org. I used heritage research in many of my own political science papers in college and found that the breakdown of topics on the website is so helpful for finding sources when you need them. So go ahead and visit heritage.org and find the information you need today. Welcome back to Problematic Women. Today, I am joined by Kate Trinko, Editor-in-Chief of The Daily Signal, and also my co-host, Virginia Allen. One major topic of discussion this week has been the new Netflix movie, Cuties. This adaptation of a French film has come under fire for using actual 11-year-olds to stimulate sex. Those who advocate for the film say that while they use you know, these images, uh, it's really supposed to show kind of the dangers of sexualizing children. So we have Katie here, Daily Signal Editor-in-Chief and definitely a problematic woman, to discuss her new op-ed, Cuties, shows the unseriousness of the Me Too movement. Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for, to you and Virginia for having me. So I don't agree with the folks who are advocating for the film. want to, you know, definitely say that. But, you know, I, I can't understand that they're making a point. So kind of how have these two sides formed? And is it a partisan issue? Does it seem to be, you know, like parents versus single people, older people versus young people? Where does that line fall? Yeah, it seems to be becoming another left versus right issue, which is confusing to me because, you know, it's 2020, things are crazy, but I would have liked to have thought that we could all agree in America that pedophilia is bad, but apparently not. Um, you know, sarcasm aside, though, it is really upsetting. So we've had four Republican senators at least um, decry the movie. I believe Senator Ted Cruz is actually talking about maybe a Justice Department investigation. Senators Josh Hawley, Mike Lee, Tom Cotton have all spoken out against it. On the left, we have a lot of silence. Uh, the Obamas, of course, have a reported multi-million dollar deal with Netflix. They haven't said anything. Uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's daughter tweeted against it and mentioned that she had a daughter about the age of um, the kids in the film, or at least the age they were depicted as being. And, you know, she said this encouraged pedophilia. She hashtag cancel Netflix. Um, but her mother has been absolutely silent. So, you know, it's really disheartening to see that this has become an issue that it's become sort of left versus right, because I would think that we would have common values here. And what you hear is a lot of the people defending the film are saying, including the director, are saying, well, it's against um, child exploitation. It's meaning to show that that's bad. And the thing is, even if you want to grant them the best of intentions, that this was not meant to you know, encourage pedophilia, it was really meant to show how bad this is for kids, it still contains scenes where children are behaving sexually provocatively. And so I think that should be very disturbing to everyone. And Kate, you have done a lot of research on the film. You've, you've looked into it. You know a lot about it. But you made the decision to not actually watch it or even watch the trailer. Why? Yeah. So generally, as a journalist, I want to be there for myself. I want to see something. I don't want to take someone else's word for it. Like the whole point of being a journalist is to see with your own eyes what's happening and accurately report to others. Um, so this is a very rare instance in my career where I haven't done that. And before the movie came out, there was a big hullabaloo and Netflix said, hey, 
our description of this movie being about 11-year-olds twerking and our sexually provocative poster don't reflect the actual movie, wait until it comes out and see it. And I was like, I don't really know. This <laughs> seems like a pretty big mistake. But, you know, I was a little bit like, let's see what happens. And then, of course, the movie has since been released. And I read a bit about it. And it doesn't really seem even vaguely on the line, like Variety, which is not some right-wing outlet, um, but, you know, a Hollywood publication, described it as children simulating sex acts. I don't want to see that. I don't want to even maybe see that. I think when you come to a topic like this, you know, we've sort of lost in our current age the idea that there are some things that are so inappropriate to see that no one should see them. But I, I again, I'm sad to see that this isn't the consensus, but I don't think anyone should watch this. I don't want to see that. I don't want to have those images in my mind ever. Um, so I feel very strongly that, you know, there have been credible people who have watched it or watched parts of it and are reporting back. And the rest of us do not need to pollute ourselves by also watching it. And frankly, participating in the exploitation of children. Yeah, no, Kate, you're so right. I, I was reading this article about, you know, like the most gruesome scenes in horror movies and thinking about, back about horror movies that I've seen and you know like it's it stays with you so I I think Kate yeah. that's actually a really great point that you bring up that like I I don't want it in my brain so you know I'm with you you I, I I'm not gonna watch it either I ugh. but I want to bring it back to the, the first point you made about you know Netflix when they released this movie it was you know completely different than how they're trying to brand it today why do you think they branded it that way to begin with yeah, I mean, I have no idea. You would like to think that at Netflix, someone would have seen the description like, hey, it's about 11-year-olds twerking and went, oh, we don't do child porn. That seems problematic. But I don't know what the review process is. No one freaked out. It went up. <laughs> um, so I, I really, I mean, defenders of the movie seem to be saying you know, you don't appreciate art, you're, you know, all American Puritans, the Europeans get this, but, you know, while I think Europe gets some things right, um, I certainly hope that most Europeans would not be okay with this. And you take a lot of time in your op-ed to talk about the hashtag MeToo movement, uh, which has obviously been in the news a lot the past two years. And you essentially say that uh, <laughs> Cuties kind of proves that Hollywood is just not serious about hashtag me too. Can you just explain that a little bit more? Sure. So, you know, when you think back to the beginning of me too, before it became super politicized and just about frankly taking Brett Kavanaugh down, you know, it was a movement that I think a lot of us, including conservatives were potentially excited for, you know, there are men in power who take advantage of women. Um, there are situations where maybe they, um, maybe there's not really a recourse to the courts, but that doesn't mean that something immoral wasn't done. A boss, you know, pressuring his subordinate to sleep with him, and that was the sort of thing that came up a lot in Me Too, is bad. I think, you know, we also talked a lot about um, blurred consent lines. You know, can a woman, or for that matter, a man, who's super drunk, consent in a serious way. I mean, their body can do it, but are they really consenting mentally? And I felt like those were a lot of important questions that really as a society we should grapple with. I mean, I don't, I mean, I guess I don't have my cards on the table. I think that, you know, we currently live in this 
society where we think that the most important thing in the world seems to be having sex. And it's okay if you're drunk. It's okay if the other person has murky consent. It's okay if you barely know the person, which you talk about consent and communication. Like, you can't communicate with someone you've been on one or two dates with in a very real way. And then they're like, oh, but I thought you meant, and you know, anyway, I'm getting on a soapbox. But (laughs) It was a very, I think it was an important movement. And then unfortunately, as I said, it got hijacked by politics. I'm not going to relitigate Brett Kavanaugh, but you know, that was hardly a slam dunk or even sort of slam dunk case of sexual assault. Um, But you know, Hollywood, I would say more than any other industry was affected by me too. And you saw a lot of actresses and even I believe some actors speaking out and saying they felt violated in Hollywood. And Hollywood seemed to be like, okay, we got it. Consent is important. We can't live like madmen anymore, um, which the rest of us got 50 years ago, but whatever. <laughs> um, and then you have this movie coming out. And the thing is, you know, I know we have disagreements about consent and who can consent and when they can consent, but a minor child um, doing sexual acts, like how can they possibly consent to that? These images will be online even if they're off Netflix, they will be online somewhere for the rest of their lives. And these girls, um, you know, I wasn't able to find their exact ages online, um, but I have not seen any reporting that says they were over 18 now or when they filmed it. Um, an Instagram account that appears to belong to the lead actress identifies her as 14. And then the director, in an interview with this outlet, Zora, which is on Medium, it's a publication for women of color, I believe, is how they describe themselves. And the director did an interview with them. And she referred to the actresses as children. So it's, again, I I can't definitely say they're all underage, but it certainly seems that they were. And, you know, I think about it, like, we don't let I don't know French laws, but in America, like, we don't let kids, you know, get tattoos willy-nilly. We don't, you know, there's certain other things, you know, you can't consent to a sexual act with someone older than you. Um, And that's because we take seriously the idea of consent. And it's like these girls, yeah, their parents agreed to it, and yeah, they did it, but they have no way of understanding it. And Hollywood should have never, ever allowed a child to do this faux consent to the sexual behavior. And you think the parents would be the safeguard, you know, like where, where were the parents this whole time? Yeah, I don't know anything about the parents. The director mentioned that the parents were also activists. Um, again, maybe they were well-intentioned, although, you know, it's hard to imagine given the kind of shots that were described, you know, by a variety and others, including crotch shots, that any parent would be okay with this being done to their child. So one reaction to this has been, you know, folks tweeting hashtag cancel Netflix. Has this caught on? You know, do you think this will actually affect what Netflix is going to do? I hope so. Um, Variety, again, had a report um, citing a data company who, unfortunately, their name is escaping me, but they said that the number of cancellations um, this weekend were eight times or nearly eight times as high as they normally are. So I think cancel Netflix is having an effect. Um, You know, I also believe when Netflix got in trouble for um, saying they wouldn't film in Georgia because, you know, Georgia had passed a pro-life law. Um, Their quarter after that, as I recall, was one of their worst in history or modern history. So, you know, um, I don't actually have a Netflix account. I've been using my sister's, but um, 
I am not going to be using it, you know, going forward, at least for a few months. And hopefully they remove the film. Um, I've encouraged my sister to cancel. Um, and I think, you know, I've seen friends on Facebook, parents, you know, parents really love their Netflix. Like you can plop the kids in front of it, but you know, at least one of them was like, I'm canceling. And I think that it's really unfortunate that, you know, I'm not a big fan of boycotts unless it feels like it's absolutely necessary. But the fact that Netflix is defending this movie and not backing down or not even, you know, some people have pointed out, um, maybe they could edit the film to remove these graphic scenes and um, just show the edited version. Um, I'm not wild about that idea, but they're not suggesting any compromises. Yeah, I know personally, I went ahead and I canceled my account and I actually upgraded my Hulu account to no, <laughs> no commercials, so. Nice. <laughs> Good job, Lauren. Well, Kate, we just really appreciate uh, the fact that you're diving in <laughs> and discussing this issue. I really encourage people to check out your op-ed on the Daily Signal website. It's so good. I felt like I was cheering the whole time as I was reading it. It's like, yeah, and that's a good point. And that's a good point. Yes. So, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's, you know, the world's worst topic to discuss, basically, but appreciate y'all bringing attention to it. America is at a crossroads. Each day we see the penalties of progressive policies across our nation, while night after night our city streets are set ablaze by riots and rage. That's why the Heritage Foundation has developed a plan to help take our country back. The Citizen's Guide to Fight for America provides a series of heritage-recommended action items delivered to you each week. Make an impact in your community and in our country. Sign up for the Citizen's Guide at heritage.org slash 2020 and join in the fight for America today. All right, welcome back. It is now that time of the week. Time to name our problematic woman of the week. Virginia, will you do me the honors? Yes, this week the crown goes to Mary Claire Amsalom. Thank you. Yes. Very exciting. What an honor. <laughs> well, I think a real fun fact about Mary Claire, she had her first baby in March. So I did. We, wanted, we wanted to talk a little bit about what was it like having a baby? Really? I mean, that was the height of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, it. I mean, first of all, I, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky in that, you know, I'm not sick. My husband's not sick. We haven't been sick this whole time. Our baby has been happy and healthy. So, I mean, so thankful for that. Um, but it, it was scary. It was scary because at that point in March, we really didn't know very much. I mean, I was scouring the internet every day because we were getting all of our information then out of China and it, it wasn't, we didn't know how reliable that could be. And so we didn't have a lot of evidence on whether or not, um, if you got coronavirus as a pregnant woman, if you could pass that to your baby. So I was terrified of that um, during my last few weeks of pregnancy. And then how was I going to keep my child safe, you know, after giving birth? That was scary. We were really worried about hospitals being overrun. So I was so worried. I was like, oh, my gosh, am I going to go into labor? And then I get there and there's no room for me. Um, you know, none of that ended up being true. Uh, when we went to the hospital, it was a complete ghost town because I, I think because they, they sort of stopped non-essential medical procedures in anticipation for, for hospitals getting pretty crowded. And so when we went there, I mean, we didn't interact with anyone in the hallways, which, which was a relief. Um, but, but I've talked to people about sort of 
what it was like at the hospital. And I think every parent has this moment where like, you have your baby and you're, you're crying, you're so happy. And then a few minutes later, you sort of get this this wave of absolute fear when sort of the the magnitude of your responsibility now hits you you know you're holding this perfect little baby and then realizing like oh my gosh like my only job for as long as I'm alive is going to be protecting this baby and then having a baby during a pandemic it's just god being like okay like what do you got like what <laughs> like Europe um wow. so i mean that is it was scary, but I'm also so thankful that the first few months of my son's life, I mean, I was just locked up with, you know, me, my husband and my baby. There's literally nothing else to do except for to enjoy being a little family of three. So neither of us have missed a moment of our son's life, you know, because we've been home and that is a real blessing. So, you know, with every, you know, scary moment, there's just, you know, a million more things to to be happy and grateful for in that. And I can't wait to one day talk to him. I was like, you will not believe the time that you were born in. It was wild. <laughs> yeah. That's so amazing, Mary Claire. <laughs> I mean, wow. Props to you. Like anytime you have a baby, like you just hear all the stories from parents about how challenging it is, but then throw a pandemic on top of it. And mm -hmm. wow, well done. <laughs> you <laughs> know, has having a child and now being a parent, has that affected the way that even you think about your work and specifically your work around education policy? Yeah. So, I mean, before I was a parent, it was just sort of this, this abstract thing. You know, I want to fix the education system because it's something that I deeply believe in. But now, it, yeah, it is definitely a little more personal. I, I want a good education system for my son to be able to thrive in. I want that to be a good world for him to operate in. I want him to have good options. But there's, there's definitely a stronger sense of urgency now that, that I've become a parent myself. Well, Mary Claire, thank you so much for joining us. That's such a, a nice place to end it. And just I want to tell our listeners one more time, you don't want to miss it. COVID and the Classroom, available on Apple Podcasts. All right. Well, we are closing out today's show with, once again, a great Twitter poll. Lauren, what is our question for the week? So I'm really curious, did folks actually really cancel their Netflix subscription in response to the Cuties movie? So the options are yes, no. Or I want to, but I'm still on the fence. Virginia, I have to tell you, I am really interested to see what people are going to say about this. Lauren, I think that this is one of the better questions that we have asked our listeners on Twitter. So be sure to check out the poll. It's going to be on the Daily Signal Twitter page. And Lauren and I will also share it on our Twitter pages this afternoon. So please vote. We want to hear from you all. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please take a moment to subscribe and share. Don't forget, conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, wherever you do get your podcasts. It makes such a difference. Have a great week and we'll see you next time. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.